It's estimated that at any given time, there are up to 90,000 missing persons, and that's just in the United States. Imagine if your loved one went missing. Is there anything that you wouldn't do to try and find them? This is Missing Persons, and I'm your co-host, Mike Morford. In every episode of Missing Persons, you'll hear about a person who disappeared and currently remains missing, as well as the efforts to find them. In some cases, there are clues to follow and leads to check on. In other cases, it's as if the person just vanished off the face of the earth. In each episode, you'll hear from someone that's desperately searching for that missing person. And whether they've been looking for 30 days or 30 years, the struggle to find answers is real. Will you join us and become part of the search for answers in these cases? If so, search for and subscribe to Missing Persons wherever you listen to podcasts. There are dozens of episodes available to binge on right now, and new episodes come out every other Saturday. Five-year-old Lauren Jackson was playing in the dirt in front of her home at the Spring Park apartment complex on the evening of October 4, 1988. When her mother came out to check on her, Lauren had vanished. The only clue that remained were two sets of footprints walking away. This is Lauren's story. On a chilly October evening in 1988... 200 rescue workers and volunteers swarmed into the tiny township of East Vincent, Pennsylvania. At a moment's notice, they had put their lives on hold to launch a search for one of their own. A five-year-old girl named Lauren Jackson was missing. At the time, I was in shock. And I really didn't realize because I always thought, she's right here. She'll come up, you know, she'll, she'll come home, Mommy. And this is all for naught. But when daylight came, she wasn't home. In a case like this, anyone and everyone becomes a suspect. Since Lauren vanished, her case has taken a number of bizarre turns. And when all is said and done, many people believe the prime suspect is a member of Lauren's family, her own mother. Early 1980s, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Christina O'Donnell and Mickey Jackson met and fell in love quickly. The two never legally married, but would consider themselves husband and wife, and Mickey stepfather to Christina's daughter, Diana. Unfortunately, the couple brought in their own addiction issues into the relationship, making it doomed from the start. Christina having a long-term addiction to prescription medication. Christina suffered from chronic pain due to a liver disorder. Initially, she was given a prescription for Darwin, a strong painkiller, that has since been pulled off the market. Propoxyphene, which is an active ingredient in Darwin, was classified as a controlled substance due to its high potential for addiction. When used properly under the care of a doctor, It is an effective way of controlling pain. Pharmacies dispensed millions of tablets each year without any issues. And although Christina started taking this medication for legitimate reasons, she soon became addicted to it and was abusing it regularly. For Mickey, his demon was alcohol. Mickey would later state he did not know the extent of Christina's drug addiction during their relationship 
blaming his drinking as being partially responsible for this. Quote, I used to drink all the time. I never used narcotics. I was naive about that. Unquote. Regardless, Christina would become pregnant several years into their relationship with the girl, the first child for not only the couple, but also for Mickey. Lauren Marie Pico Jackson was born September 26, 1983, in Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia. She was born a month early, and as we discussed in the Deja Weaver case, with that may come with a host of medical illnesses and disabilities. Lauren was born with fluid on the brain, and also club feet, a cleft palate, double hernia, and problems with eye muscles. Doctors actually thought that Lauren would never leave the hospital, telling Christina not to hold out any hope for her. But despite the prognosis, Lauren thrived. Lauren had casts on her legs from one month old. Every Sunday, Christina had to soak these casts in soapy water so they could be replaced the next day. And once she started walking... Christina had to buy two left shoes for the little girl. The doctors also tried to correct Lauren's problems with the use of metal braces. At the age of seven months, baby Lauren underwent the first of many surgeries to correct the double hernia. At age two, Lauren, who was still so tiny she was wearing onesies for a child half her age, Lauren began having the first of many surgeries to correct both her cleft palate and her club foot. Lauren's eye problems were addressed by wearing child-sized glasses fitted with rubber hooks to keep them on her face. Doctors believed she would need as many as four surgeries to fix her right eye, with the first scheduled for just after she disappeared. Lauren's brain function was impaired, but Christina would later report this did not stop her from being, quote-unquote, the happiest little thing. Lauren, or Rennie, as Christina lovingly called her. Lauren loved music above everything. She would dance to Cher, Joan Jett, and Gloria Estefan. Lauren was never far away from her favourite toy, a microphone, so she could sing along to her favourite songs. Lauren especially loved the California Raisins, a cartoon singing group who were popular in the 1980s. Christina and Mickey would split for the final time in 1987, Christina leaving with the girls and moving into the Park Springs apartment complex in Spring City, Pennsylvania. Mickey was staying in the Roxborough area of Philadelphia. Mickey would later claim Christina left without reason, although she would later make allegations of physical abuse. Mickey would deny this to be the case, and he would call his former partner a liar. But we all know that there are always three sides to a story, with the truth lying somewhere in the middle. Despite their animosity between the couple, Christina would state Mickey was a wonderful father to Lauren, and he would never do anything to harm her. Mickey would remember his daughter as being loving and sweet, always excited and eager for her visits with her father. 
after the separation, Christina and Mickey had joint custody of Lauren. But there were alleged issues within her mother's home. Mickey believed that Christina had got caught up with the quote-unquote wrong people at the housing project. Although he had originally planned to wait until Lauren was seven or eight years old to seek sole custody, Mickey decided to move this plan up, and he started the process six weeks before Lauren's disappearance. October 4th, 1988. Five-year-old Lauren and her mother had gone to a local fast food restaurant for dinner. Her 12-year-old sister Diana was babysitting for some neighbours that night. Lauren had begged her sister to let her come along to the babysitting job. She was particularly obsessed with her big sister, but Diana had refused to take her. That while she did love Lauren, Diana was at an age where it wasn't cool to let your baby sister tag along everywhere. But promises of cheeseburgers and fries put Lauren back to her normal cheerful mood. When they returned to the apartment complex around quarter past seven, it was a nice and clear night, so Lauren was permitted to go outside and play with a neighbourhood boy, six-year-old Brian Cunningham, who lived four doors away. Christina telling her youngest child to have fun, and she went about cleaning their apartment. At around 7.30, Christina glanced outside to check on Lauren. She spotted her in front of the adjacent apartment building, around 30 yards away. She was happily digging in the dirt with a spoon with Brian. A couple of minutes later, Brian's mother Lisa called him inside. She wanted him to get ready to go to the mall with her. Brian said his goodbyes to his little friend and left Lauren playing alone. Shortly after, neighbour Christine Pellin was hanging out in the parking lot with friends across the road from Lauren's home. She would later report seeing Lauren sitting on the front porch and playing by herself. She would see Lauren's mother Christina come outside to tell Lauren she would need to come inside soon. Shortly after, Christine and her friends would move to the other side of the building, losing all sight of the little girl. Christine would later report seeing Lauren again when she went back to the parking lot to fetch her jacket, the two waving to each other as Christine ran back to her friends. A very short time later, Christine saw Christina running around and panicking because she could not find her daughter. Christina knocked on the Cunningham's apartment door, but there was no answer. She would later learn Lisa and Brian had gone to the mall. For the next hour, Christina went all through the 151 apartment complex, assuming Lauren was still close by. Lauren knew she was not allowed to leave the complex. But then again, two weeks prior to her disappearance, Lauren did leave the complex. She left with several older girls and walked to a nearby store. The argument put forward by Lauren's family is that she did not leave alone and therefore wouldn't have left alone on this day. An hour and a half later, just before 9.30pm, there was still no sign of the little girl and Christina started to panic. She called the police to report Lauren missing. 
Because of Lauren's young age and it was now dark, police started the search immediately. Fifty men from four police departments and six fire departments searched the surrounding area. A helicopter was brought in from Brandywine Hospital in Coatesville. It flew over the area to provide search teams with light in wooded areas and fields. Divers from the Spring Ford Rescue Squad also began searching bodies of water in the area. Pennsylvania State Police Troopers began stopping cars along Route 724, showing Lauren's photo and asking for information. The next day, bloodhound search dogs were brought in. They managed to track Lauren's scent away from the apartment complex and nearly a mile away to the Vincent Motel, where the trail abruptly stopped. There was no evidence Lauren was inside the motel at any time, and all residents of the motel at the time were questioned. But the sudden loss of her scent and lack of evidence Lauren had been in the motel led authorities to believe that she may have gotten into a car. The FBI also joined the search, and the search radius was increased to eight square miles. This included the abandoned Penthurst State Hospital, which posed a unique challenge for the team. Not only did the hospital have a number of abandoned buildings, but also a series of underground tunnels that connected the buildings. These tunnels were dark, damp, and in a state of disrepair. Soldiers from the National Guard were also brought in, as well as search and rescue dogs, but this failed to yield any results. Search teams also looked through cars, garages and dumpsters, in addition to numerous marshy areas and ponds. Over the course of a two-week extensive search, 20 ponds were dragged, but no trace of Lauren could be found. Two days after Lauren's disappearance, police found the only evidence that has ever been found of the little girl. Investigators found two sets of footprints along Park Springs Boulevard. An experienced tracker at the scene believed one set of footprints to have belonged to the little girl. The other set belonging to someone with men-sized seven or eight shoes – It was near a public payphone and was only about 50 yards away from Lauren's apartment. There was no sign of a struggle in her prints or an attempt to pull away. It was almost like she knew the person she was with. Police weren't sure if Lauren had wandered away or gotten lost, but regardless, it was starting to get dire. It was the time of year where the daytime temperatures were still fairly mild, but the overnight temperatures were much colder. If Lauren had wandered off and gotten lost, she would not survive long before succumbing to exposure. Investigators thoroughly searched all along the road leading away from the apartment, but they found no sign of a struggle. They considered the possibility that Lauren had been hit by a car after running into the road, with a panicked driver disposing of her body. But they found nothing to indicate any kind of accident, There was no blood, and there were no pieces of glass or plastic on the road. No one who had been outside the apartment complex that night heard any sounds of an accident either. All that there were left were the two sets of footprints. 
While the search and rescue crew continued their painstaking hunt for Lauren, investigators launched an aggressive approach to her disappearance. If someone had taken Lauren, every hour that passed by decreased their chances of finding Lauren alive and unharmed. With that in mind, investigators treated it as a criminal case from the start. Lauren's family members were the first people to be interviewed by investigators. Christina would later state she believed her daughter was abducted. Lauren's sister Diana would also believe her sister to be kidnapped. She would say that Lauren was a very shy and uncertain child around strangers and that she would not willingly go with anyone she did not know. Mickey Jackson, however, had a different theory, that Christina had something to do with Lauren's disappearance. He told police he had been concerned for Lauren's safety with her mother because the housing project the pair were living at was a hotbed for drug and criminal activity, that he was seeking sole custody of his daughter, that he did not believe Lauren was abducted and instead Christina had given her away and he would publicly state this openly, even on national TV. It was his theory Christina would see this as a win-win situation. She would ensure Mickey would not get sole custody of Lauren and she would not have to deal with the responsibility of being a mother. Now, Christina would dispute this, even putting it back onto Mickey that maybe he was responsible for disappearing his own daughter to get back at her. And by all accounts from the time, Christina was distraught throughout the initial days and inconsolable at the thought of never seeing her daughter again. Quote, That's my child. I could care less about Mickey. There is no way I would ever harm or give Lauren away. Unquote. As with any high-profile case, psychics would contact the police in droves, or claiming to know what happened to the little girl. One psychic in particular, however, caught their interest. Local Philadelphia psychic Valerie Morrison claimed to have a vision of where Lauren was taken to after she vanished. The description she gave matched what investigators discovered on the property of a man named John French. Valerie spoke of seeing a red barn, something orange, and a sequence of numbers. She also heard dogs barking. And although she could not provide an exact location of the barn itself, search parties combed the area until they found a red barn matching that description. Inside the barn was a car covered by an orange tarp. The sequence of numbers Valerie had provided to police was a license plate of that vehicle. At the nearby property, there were two dogs barking. October 7, 1988, search dogs were brought to the area near French's property, and they would pick up on Lauren's scent trail, which led them directly to the barn. The trail ended there, though. Now, for the record, John French did cooperate with police fully, allowing them to search the barn and several wells on the property. He was, and still is, not considered a suspect or person of interest in Lauren's disappearance. The thought process was that maybe Lauren had walked to this property, and even though it was some distance from the apartment complex, the area was quite rural, and this was one of the few properties in walking distance. 
and that maybe Lauren hid in the barn because she was scared or lost, or maybe to get away from the elements because she was cold and it was dark. Chief of East Vincent Township Police James Cote said in interviews in regards to the psychic vision, quote, As the search widened, it was imperative that we receive complete cooperation from property owners to eliminate the possibility of Lauren being injured or worse, unquote. And for the record, psychic Valerie Morrison does not believe Lauren is still alive, quote, I know she is at peace with our God, unquote. As weeks went by without any progress, parents living in the housing project grew more concerned about the safety of their children. Afraid that there was a kidnapper at large, they stopped allowing their kids to play outside without adult supervision. Hoping that money might motivate people with knowledge of the case to come forward, a reward was offered for any information resulting in finding Lauren. Local media had been covering Lauren's case since the first day she went missing. Because of the publicity, word about the reward spread fast. For the first couple of weeks, donations poured in. But as the search for Lauren entered its second month, her mother made headlines for all the wrong reasons when she was arrested for filling a fake prescription for painkillers a month before Lauren disappeared. The community that had initially rallied around her now began to question the possibility of her involvement in the case. Once the public found out about the arrest, donations into the reward fund came to an abrupt stop. As I mentioned before, Propoxyphene is a controlled substance, and the drug was strictly monitored by doctors to make sure the patient was not taking more tablets than they were supposed to. Now, unfortunately, Christina had been taking more than the prescribed amount, and her supply ran out quickly. To obtain more of the drug, she called a Rite Aid pharmacy and pretended to be a doctor. The pharmacist took the prescription over the phone but they had a feeling the call had not been legitimate and decided to look into it further before filling the prescription. When she called the doctor's office to verify the prescription, her suspicions were confirmed. The prescription was fake. When Christina went to the pharmacy to pick up the prescription, she was arrested for violating state and federal drug laws. Most pharmacists are quite adept at spotting fake prescriptions, and it's not uncommon for them to call the police and have them pick up an offender. And unfortunately, Lauren had been with Christina when she was arrested. Now, for the most part, the people who get arrested like this, you will never hear about. They don't make the news. But because of what happened to Lauren, Christina was an exception. This was front-page news. Christina would later plead guilty, and she was sentenced to probation and had to pay a fine. There had been many people who suspected Christina from the beginning, that Christina had something to do with Lauren's disappearance. Once news of her arrest got out, even people who had defended her at first began to think that maybe she was involved. Others believed that while she hadn't played a direct role in Lauren's disappearance, Christina may have been high on drugs and not paying close attention to her daughter. 
Christina would argue this staunchly. She blamed the media for blowing everything out of proportion and portraying her as a negligent mother. Her neighbours would be Christina's greatest allies. They described her as a great mother and never saw any indication she was using drugs. And no one ever came forward with any evidence that Lauren had been neglected by her mother. Police were willing to consider any theory at this point because of the sheer lack of leads. And even though they did not have the evidence to support Mickey's theory, they did investigate his claims seriously. Aware the chances of finding the little girl were diminishing rapidly, they chased down anyone who may have come in contact with the little girl. In January 1991, America's Most Wanted aired a 30-second spot about Lauren's case and featured a sculpture of the little girl, created by a nationally known artist, Frank Bender, who had done similar work on cases such as Philadelphia's Boy in the Box case. Lauren's case was shown at the end of the episode, with a brief synopsis of facts surrounding her disappearance and her physical description. And then in April 1994, Unsolved Mysteries also dedicated an entire segment to Lauren's case in an episode titled Lost Loved Ones, showing a reenactment of the evening in question. I have managed to track this episode down, and as cheesy as these reenactments can be, it did generate more public interest in the case. The National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children began distributing Lauren's photo and description on flyers that went out all across the country. Numerous tips were called in from all over the country, and investigators followed them all up. But unfortunately, none were fruitful. In May 1991... Lauren's father even travelled to Florida to look into reports that Lauren had been sighted there. Mickey contacted the now former chief of police, James Coate, to request he go with him on the trip to check out the information. Now, although Chief Coate had retired several months prior and he was no longer involved in law enforcement, Chief Coate consulted with the FBI and he and Mickey got on a plane to Florida to see what they could uncover. Christina would publicly complain that this trip was nothing but Mickey trying to push his agenda that she was responsible for their daughter's disappearance. Some of Christina's cousins did live there, but she claimed not to be in contact with them for years. Regardless for the reason for the trip, Mickey and Chief Coate looked around the neighbourhood some residences and a school where Lauren may have been enrolled. But as was becoming the theme in this case, no evidence of Lauren being there could be found. Mickey would not be the only person to believe Christina may have been involved in Lauren's disappearance. Some people felt that Christina had sold her daughter for drug money. In December 1988, a witness came forward and said they had been in the parking lot of the James Way Mall at 7pm on the night Lauren went missing, and they believed they had seen her being forced into a vehicle of two elderly people by a woman. The witness claimed the little girl was screaming, quote-unquote, no mummy no, 
and the woman who was shoving her into the car looked exactly like Christina. Police drove the witness to the Park Springs apartment complex and the witness was able to identify Christina. However, there are several problems with this witness account. The biggest problem being the time frame. There were several children living in the apartment complex, playing outside of the night Lauren vanished, and they were all interviewed by investigators. Most of them remembered seeing Lauren around 7.30 on the night she vanished. The witness also waited two months before going to the police with this information. Identifying Christina as a person she saw really wasn't any smoking gun because she was the mother of a high-profile missing child case and she had recently been arrested for the fake prescription. Her face had been all over the front-page news. So like all the other leads police had been given, this one was another dead end. Another tip received would be from an 11-year-old girl who claimed to have seen a white man forcing Lauren into a vehicle, but that has never been proven. Now, I did see in some sources that this sighting has been debunked, but unfortunately, I could not find anything official in my research. In the early 1990s, the question of whether or not Christina had anything to do with Lauren's disappearance went before a grand jury. Christina and Diana were just two of the witnesses called to testify. Grand jury proceedings are always kept secret, so it's unclear what kind of evidence was presented. But in the end, the grand jury failed to indict Christina. It does not seem possible a five-year-old girl could simply disappear from a busy apartment complex surrounded by people, but that's exactly what happened. During the course of the investigation, police considered several different theories about what may have happened. Stranger abduction did seem unlikely, as they are quite rare. Although we do know by doing this podcast, they certainly do happen. But no one reported seeing anyone suspicious hanging around the apartment complex that day. Several witnesses remembered seeing Lauren walking around 20 yards from her apartment on the day she disappeared, but no one saw her stop or speaking to anyone. Christina claimed her daughter would not leave the apartment complex, but we also know at five years old, their logic and reasoning does not always apply. I know my six-year-old can be distracted by the smallest thing. A butterfly, a balloon, a puppy. Maybe she saw something that caught her eye and she went towards it to get a better look. Maybe she went further than what she was used to. Maybe she put herself in danger without even realising it. Regardless, however, after the grand jury failed to find any answers, the investigation did go cold. Investigators do continue to follow up on any new leads that come in, and they're hopeful that one day they will get the one tip they need to break the case wide open. In 2001, forensic artists with the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children created an age-enhanced photo of Lauren and what she would look like at age 18. Then in 2006, there was a second update of Lauren at age 23. 
And for those who don't know, which I found this interesting, these photos are created by studying the unique facial features of the missing child and any available photographs of the child's biological parents. The child's face is then stretched to the appropriate normal facial and cranial growth and then merged with a photograph of their parent's face. When Lauren's older sister Diana saw the age-enhanced photo of Lauren at 18, she cried. Not only did it bring up thoughts of memories never to be and the guilt from that day, but Diana said in an interview that this particular age-enhanced photo resembled Lauren's grandmother's graduation photo. As I mentioned before, Christina had a drug problem, one she battled with her whole life. The problem got steadily worse after Lauren disappeared. Christina herself openly admitted that she went on a slow downward spiral since that night. Unfortunately, Christina lost her battle and she died in 2006, still maintaining she had nothing to do with the disappearance of her daughter. Interestingly, her obituary listed Diana as her only child. There was no mention of Lauren at all. However, I would take this with a grain of salt. Christina obviously did not write her own obituary and her death was quite sudden. Her maternal grandparents were in regular contact with investigators over the years before their deaths and they would keep boxes of birthday and Christmas presents still wrapped for when Lauren returned. Unfortunately, they would all pass away without getting the answers they so desperately wanted and rightly deserved. Diana would be inconsolable over Lauren's disappearance. She blamed herself for not allowing her little sister to tag along with her to the babysitting job that evening. She felt extreme guilt over it, believing that if she had taken Lauren with her, she would have never disappeared. Unfortunately, this is unnecessary guilt that Diana still carries with her to this day. For years after Lauren's disappearance, Mickey would call the East Vincent Police Department every day at 4pm, something police officers who worked there at the time still remember today. Mickey and Diana remain advocates for the search of Lauren and still regularly talk about her story on social media and in interviews. At the time of her disappearance, Lauren Jackson was five years old. She was four foot six and about 35 pounds, with brown hair and hazel eyes. She was last seen wearing a white long-sleeve pullover shirt with the California raisins printed on both the front and the back, black knit pants with an iron stain on the back, white socks and white Reebok sneakers with pink laces. If Lauren was still alive today, she would be 38 years old. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Lauren Jackson, please contact the East Vincent Police Department on 610-431-6363. If you have your own thoughts on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook. Like the page so you don't miss any episode, and join the discussion group to share your ideas and theories. 
You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, and on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please share on your social media of choice and rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. This week's episode was researched, written, hosted and producted by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Thank you.